0: CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for joining me for this special edition of Political Rewind. Today we're going to reach into our archives and revisit a show I did some time ago with one of the true giants of global public health, Dr. Bill Faghi. Dr. Faghi is a former director of the Centers for Disease Control, went on to lead the global health initiatives of the Carter Center, and was one of the founders of the Task Force for Global Health, one of the country's major institutions dealing with diseases in underdeveloped nations. He's also served as a senior medical advisor for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and co-founded the Task Force for Child Survival, an initiative of the World Health Organization, the Rockefeller Foundation, and the World Bank. Those are heady credentials for sure. But what made me think it would be a good idea to play my conversation with Dr. Fage today is that he's the doctor credited with leading the effort to eradicate one of the most deadly and ubiquitous viruses on Earth, smallpox. For at least 3,000 years and perhaps much longer, smallpox raged across the planet. It killed as many as three in every ten people who developed the disease and left countless others blinded and disfigured. Bill Fage began his work fighting smallpox in the 1970s. As you'll hear in our conversation, he started the effort in Nigeria and methodically followed the virus wherever it went. He's written a compelling book about his campaign called House on Fire, The Fight to Eradicate Smallpox. It was after reading that book that I knew I wanted to talk with Dr. Fage, who still makes his home in Atlanta. Of course, we've all become familiar with the language of viruses as we make our way through the coronavirus pandemic. And as you listen to this interview, I think you'll hear many touch points relevant to what we're experiencing today. We recorded this show in October 2015. Dr. Bill um, thank you so much for being here. Well, thanks for asking me. Let's talk a bit about your childhood and the things that led you to a career in public health. You, at about age 15, which is where I think we ought to pick this up, were in a full-body cast. What was going on? Why did you need a full-body cast at that point?
1: The top of my femur had separated, And uh, the two options, one was surgery and one was a body cast to let it uh, uh, grow back on. And uh, I'm glad that I did not choose surgery because it was not that good in those days. So I spent three months in a body cast. We did not have television in our town, uh, which uh, led me to do a lot of reading. And that turned out to be good.
0: And uh, one of the books that you read during that confinement was uh, an Albert Schweitzer book. Is that correct? That's correct. Out of My Life and Thought. Um, tell people who Albert Schweitzer is, because I don't think people are as familiar with him and his work today as they might have been, say, a number of years back.
1: Well, Albert Schweitzer was a true genius. And by the time he was 30, he had three earned PhDs, one in theology, uh, one in music, one in, in philosophy. And at age 30, he enrolled in medical school and so he got his fourth earned degree and from age 30 on he devoted his life to uh, people in Africa. He enjoyed philosophy and other things so much and music. I mean at one time he was the world's authority on Bach but he was also the world's authority on organ building. I mean this was really a polymath. And uh, his book, Out of My Life and Thought, there was a point in there where he said he realized one day that he'd been so blessed that now he had to figure out what to do with his talents. And that's
0: when he decided to go
1: to medical school. But that was impressive to me.
0: Why would a 15-year-old choose a book by Albert Schweitzer?
1: It was a small town and a small library. (laughs) So you took what you could get.
0: (laughs) There's a quote from that book. There are several quotes that really stand out in my mind. One of them is, Schweitzer wrote, I want to be the pioneer of a new renaissance. I want to throw faith in a new humanity like a burning torch into our dark times. That's a very uh, exciting and profound statement, I think.
1: It is, and it shows how far ahead he was of most people. I think he was also the father of ecology. His uh, whole idea of reverence for life that it, all ethics up until that time really centered around people. Mm-hmm. And now he's saying no, you have to consider animals. Even have to consider insects and you don't destroy them unless it's, it's necessary. I think this was the beginning of, of real ecology. Uh,
0: it, he said something else and I, and I, I, I mention these things because it seems to me that whether you followed these intentionally or not they say a lot about what your life became as you move forward. He said impart as much as you can of your spiritual being to those who are on the road with you and accept as something precious what comes back to you from them. And your entire life has been based on this philosophy that giving, the giver always is receive something valuable in return. It
1: shows how selfish we are. <laughs> That's right. We're looking for what comes back. But um, no, it, Schweitzer was a big influence.
0: So- Schweitzer lit you up about the idea of, I think, partly uh, the adventure of traveling to foreign lands as well as the notion of of giving back. Are those the things that inspired you to uh, begin looking at public health? I think so. One has to be very
1: careful about giving motives to people who work in public health. People always want to look for you must have a lot of compassion. I think it's there are lots of things that cause us to do what we do, and it may not always be compassion. It may be what you're talking about, the interest of other lands, the mystery of another place. I told a group of students at the University of Washington some years ago that 13 years ago I needed cancer surgery. And I asked myself how to get someone who was technically very, very good, but I wanted more than that. I wanted someone that was technically good and hated to lose. I mean, just <laughs> always wanted to win. Compassion was not on my list as I looked for a person. Now, I got to know this surgeon quite well, and, and so I knew he was a person of compassion who went into this with compassion, but that's not what I was looking for. And the same way with global health workers. I am interested in people who don't like to lose, and they like to solve problems. And oftentimes you find compassion is the reason they went into this particular area, but it's not what I'm looking for initially in a global health worker.
0: But So you did pursue a a career in, in the field. You became an epidemiologist. I did. When I read your wonderful book, House on Fire, the story of the eradication of smallpox. As I read about your early life, it occurred to me that there was a certain destiny. You met smallpox on a number of occasions, and it was really not an accident that you would eventually be involved in the eradication. Does that resonate with you?
1: Well, it's why I tell students, do not spend time on a life plan. You have no idea What opportunities will present themselves. Spend your time on a life philosophy, and then you have something to fall back on with every fork in the road. But don't waste time on a life plan that won't
0: last more than a year. So so you were some, there was a certain destiny in your dealing with smallpox. You were working in Colorado. I was working for CDC as an Epidemic
1: Intelligence Service officer. And they got a report of a suspected case of smallpox in a Navajo child who was hospitalized in Farmington.
0: Which would be really unusual since the last, I think, case of smallpox prior to this report of possible smallpox in the United States was 1949. 1949. And this was 1962? That's right. Okay. So you went to Farmington to see this child.
1: I first had to find the book they told me to get, which was Dixon's book on smallpox. Only to find it had been checked out by a a medical student who was doing a paper. And if you're a medical student doing a paper, this is the biggest thing in the world that day. It was hard to talk him out of the book, but I did. And by the time I got to Farmington that night, I felt pretty confident I knew the difference between smallpox and chickenpox. But you know, that's not a lot of expertise but only to be totally surprised when they sent a car to the plane to pick me up to take me to the hospital. People were waiting for me, the outside expert. And as I walked in that room and saw that child across the room, I knew immediately I did not know what that child had. What a feeling. So I took my time doing the history and physical. I went into an adjoining room and called back to the people at CDC, that were involved in this, and and they agreed they could not tell what this was. So we had to assume it was smallpox, proceed on that basis until we could rule it out. Unfortunately, fortunately, it was not
0: smallpox. It was not smallpox. But it was your first encounter with the disease. Certainly in that job, you had no expectation that you would ever have anything to do um, with uh, the notion of searching for smallpox in the United States. And then the same thing happened in your next assignment, right, in I think 1963, you were on temporary assignment as a doctor for the Peace Corps in India. Again, you weren't going there to deal with smallpox, and yet it found you. That's right.
1: The Peace Corps physician became sick, and uh, I was at an EIS CDC conference, and and there was an announcement that uh, he he was sick. Would anyone volunteer to go for three months while they got a replacement? And so that's how I happened to, to go there. My supervisor was a man by the name of Charlie Houston. He insisted, in addition to taking care of the medical needs of the Peace Corps volunteers, visit the hospitals and find out what are the problems in India. And so that's how I happened to go to infectious disease hospitals and see uh, smallpox.
0: And this was where you first recognized things like the smell of the disease first saw the pustules and the awful effects that it had on individuals. Exactly,
1: and the number of people that had scars on their faces. I mean, you could walk down any street in India and it was amazing how many people were
0: pockmarked. It has been so long since smallpox has, uh, has uh, shown itself in the world that I'm not sure people understand just how devastating a disease it was. I'd like you to describe what a smallpox p- patient goes through.
1: It, what I saw in my first cases in India, people in a hospital room that were now going to be isolated from the rest of society forever. They were either gonna die or they would recover and have facial scars that separated them forever. It made it harder to, to get a marriage partner and, and so forth. But I was struck by the fact that you could smell smallpox before you entered the room. You knew you were coming into something different. And I think the smell comes from decayed flesh.
0: A rash develops on the skin, often over the entire body, including the face. That's right. And then it goes beyond a rash, right? Individual pustules. That's right. Is that right? That's right. And if,
1: if people still remember chickenpox... It looks like chickenpox to start with, but it becomes more severe. And the difference is with smallpox, it really involves the face and the extremities, even if the body is not covered. But in many people, every square inch of skin would be covered with lesions. And they start with a pimple, and then they become a blister, and then they become a pustule, that is a blister with pus in it. And these people are often so sick They don't want to move. I have pictures of people, and you can see the agony just in the picture that you know they don't want to move. And so in a hospital bed in India, even the people, the nurses coming to take care of them, don't want to touch them. Uh, You just do not want to be close to them. And I used to think how isolated these people have become just at the moment that they really need affection.
0: You then went to Nigeria. The Lutheran, you you were essentially doing work for the Lutheran Church at that point, right? That's right. You moved to Nigeria with your wife and I think your first son, David, at that point. That's right. He was like two years
1: old. He was three, yes. Uh
0: Okay. You lived in a tiny, tiny village. We did live in
1: a village which was quite trying because it was a village house, no running water, no electricity, no bathroom. And so this was not easy living. But while there, and we were learning the language and trying to learn something about the culture, uh, and you realize you really can never learn about another culture because we could always leave. They couldn't.
0: You tell a a really important, I think, story about what was involved in getting water every single day. And it was the women who had to fetch water, and during the dry season, they had to walk further and further uh, for water. I mean, these were difficult conditions, Dr. fagy
1: Well, there, there are a couple of things that I would mention about that. Number one, I learned how hard women work in Africa and how little control they have. And so, yes, they are the ones in the field. They are the ones that are taking care of the children. They are the ones doing the cooking and bringing in the water. During the rainy season, it's no problem getting water. We would just collect it off the roof of our house into a 55-gallon drum. But as the dry season came on, we were in an area where wells were not useful because there was so much salt in the soil. And in fact, the name of the village indicated that this was a place of salt. And so it was one of the commodities that they actually collected salt and, and sold it. So as the dry season went on, you had to go farther and farther. These poor women would leave in the morning with a pot on their head, and they would come back. And as the dry season went on, they had to go farther and farther. And so more of their time was consumed by getting water. We actually hired a young man in a bicycle to get our water for us. But by the end of the dry season, Uh, he was going so far he could only come back with about two tins a day that that's how difficult it was to get water. So that's one thing we learned how difficult conditions are, how hard women work, and how little uh, authority they have. Which, by the way, jumping ahead, this was the real problem and is the real problem with AIDS in Africa. Women have no power. They cannot even negotiate their sex lives. And so... Because of this, AIDS w- went rampant in Africa. So the other thing I learned was the difference between our three-year-old child, David, and other children in the village, What two things. Number one, we had knowledge that other people didn't, but we could share this knowledge. Number two, we didn't have to live on a dollar a day. Yeah. And if you had to live on a dollar a day, you had to use this for food and for shelter.
0: Couldn't use it for medications. That's right. Or, any, or any,
1: screening. Yeah. Or even firewood for boiling water. And uh, so poverty becomes the basic issue in health. And poverty continues to be the single biggest reason for health disparities in the world. So it was during this time that someone from uh, CDC sent me a letter
0: asking if I would be a consultant on smallpox. So you were sent to Nigeria as a, as a community health worker. You, once again, you did not go to Nigeria uh, to encounter smallpox, and yet smallpox found you.
1: It was December fourth, 1966, and CDC had asked me to act as an advisor on smallpox. I got a call from a missionary who said he was sure that he had smallpox in the village where he was working, and could I come to see? So on December 4th, we went and we got to the village and sure enough, they had smallpox. But now we're one month before the program is actually to start, so we didn't have our supplies. And we asked ourselves what we would do if we were smallpox viruses bent on immortality, where would we go next? It turns out that the missionaries got on the radio every night at 7 o'clock to make sure that no one was in need. And so I got on the radio that night, and with maps in front of me, I divided up the area and asked each missionary to take an area and send runners to the villages to find out if they had smallpox. 24 hours later, we had a surveillance system as good as you could ever have gotten in this country. It was amazing. 24 hours later,
0: we knew exactly where smallpox was. And so this is a very important turning point. And although there's not a single case in your book, uh, 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 House on Fire, in which you use the personal pronoun I, the fact is that you are credited with being the guy who said, Mass inoculation has not succeeded in wiping out smallpox. We now have to try something brand new, uh, which is surveillance and containment. That was really a turning point in the fight against smallpox, wasn't it? It may be less insight
1: than it looks like. We didn't have the vaccine. To do mass vaccination. Fine, but, if I'd but, had the vaccine, I would have done what everyone had told me to do, which was mass vaccination.
0: You stumbled across what turned out to be the answer for uh, wiping out smallpox. But you know what? Let's go back a step. Because uh, surveillance and containment really came back to you from a job you had when you were still a young man out in Washington. You worked for the U.S. Forest Service. I did. You yes. put out forest fires, worked to put them out.
1: I worked in northeast Washington and in southeast Washington, northeast Oregon. And
0: what did you learn about fighting forest fires that led to surveillance and containment of smallpox?
1: Well, with forest fires, uh, they keep telling you you have to separate the fuel from the fire. And the way you do this is you do a trench where you dig down to the soil so that there is no fuel for the fire to work on. And... The other thing you can do is to starve the fire of oxygen. And this is what you do when you take dirt and and throw it onto the fire. You're starving it of oxygen. So basically, that's what smallpox turned out to be, that a person with smallpox would transmit the virus no more than six or seven feet usually. So the question was, could you do the same thing that you did with a forest fire of digging a trench around it
0: Today on Political Rewind, we're revisiting a conversation I had with Dr. Bill Fage. He's the former director of the Centers for Disease Control and the man credited with leading the global campaign that eradicated smallpox. It seemed like an appropriate show to present again as we all struggle to deal with the infectious disease plaguing us now. We'll continue with Dr. Faghi in a moment. Welcome back to this special edition of Political Rewind. We've all gotten quite an education in the world of viruses as we struggle with the impact coronavirus has had on our lives, and so this seemed to be a good time to revisit the conversation I had in the fall of 2015 with Dr. Bill Fagey. He's the former director of the Centers for Disease Control and the epidemiologist credited with leading the campaign to eradicate one of the world's most devastating viruses, smallpox. When we left off our conversation, Dr. Fage was explaining that although there was a smallpox vaccine, it hadn't been enough to stop the spread of the disease. And so while he worked on smallpox in Nigeria, it occurred to him that what was needed was something that hadn't been tried before, identifying where every case of smallpox was occurring in real time in the country. In the language of today, it was Fage's form of contact tracing followed by containment.
1: And because we didn't have enough vaccine, we used the little vaccine we had in the places where we knew there was smallpox, vaccinating people at risk today. And then we used the remainder of the vaccine by asking, where is it likely to go next? And we chose three places where they had market days. In two of those three places, they were already incubating smallpox, and we didn't know it. But we vaccinated. By the time the cases showed up, everybody was already
0: vaccinated. When you say they were already incubating smallpox, you mean there were people who were on the verge of having full-blown smallpox.
1: That's right. The virus that entered them, it takes the virus about two weeks before it causes disease and rash and so forth. And so we caught it between the time they got the virus and the the uh, first symptoms. And you need symptoms in order to spread it. So they're of no real Concern while they're in the incubation period. And there, in the incubation period, we have vaccinated everybody around them. So when they came out with the disease, everyone was protected. And Let's, the outbreak stopped.
0: So you and your team, using uh, this uh, concept of surveillance uh, and uh, containment, essentially eliminated smallpox in Nigeria in what period of time? After this first outbreak.
1: And we were so surprised how fast it disappeared. Then we wondered, could we do this on a larger basis? And we went to the Ministry of Health of Eastern Nigeria, 12 million people. And we uh, were able to identify all outbreaks and to stop them within six months. Niger- Eastern Nigeria became free of smallpox.
0: There's a great story that I've heard you tell several times um, <laughs> about going to a village where uh you wanted to inoculate you this was a, a village you had targeted as a place where smallpox I assume was likely to occur and all the workers were out in the field and you hoped hope to convince the chief that these people needed to come in from the field if you were going to be able to inoculate everyone what happened
1: I really thought we were setting up a date for the future And uh, he said, no, let's do this uh, right now. And he called one of his assistants who got on a talking drum. And pretty soon people became uh, started flowing into the village. I was using a jet injector. I could vaccinate 1,000 people an
0: hour. It's like a gun. Is that that correct? That's right. It's a gun that gives individual inoculations.
1: And between each inoculation, you had a foot pump that primed a hydraulic uh, system, and then the vaccine would go right through the skin with no needle penetrating the person. But I could do 1,000 an hour, and people just kept streaming in, and after two hours, 2,000 people, we finished. And I sat down with the chief, and I said, that was a great demonstration of power that you could get people to come back into the, the village. I said, do you give them a general message that says you have to come back? Or do you say something specific? He said, no, we say something specific. And I asked, what did you say? And he said, I told people to come to the village market if they wanted to see the tallest man in the world.
0: <laughs> you are six, seven? Yes. Yes. Not the tallest man in the world, but it was effective in that case. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) You came home from Nigeria after the successes that you and your team had there. Uh, David Sensor was the director of the Centers for Disease Control at the time. Um, And he was determined that there should be a continued effort to try to wipe out smallpox. And so he sent you off to India. Uh, Now, India presented extraordinary challenges in dealing with smallpox, didn't it? It was uh,
1: several logs different than Africa. Uh, The population density was so great that if you would get 80 percent of the people vaccinated in a place like uh, Putna, Bihar State, you would still have more susceptibles per square mile than if you didn't vaccinate anyone in Seattle. So that's the problem we were up against. And We tried our first search in October of 1973, and I was so naive that in my instructions to searchers, I said, we will not find much smallpox because it's the low season of the year. To our surprise, in just two states, Bihar and Uttar Pradesh, in six days' time, the searchers found 10,000 new cases of smallpox that no one knew existed. And we were overwhelmed. There was no way to respond to that number. Containment was harder. The containment team found all kinds of problems. People who didn't trust government or vaccinators would disappear into the fields. Two weeks later, you'd have new cases, and these were the people who had escaped vaccination. So it took us about six months to really perfect containment, but we did. And we thought, we're on top of the world now. We know how to get rid of this disease. What we had not figured on, number one, the railway workers went on strike, Mm -hmm. the most powerful union in India. And when they went on strike, other people thought, oh, we might be able to go on strike also. So I went to Bihar to find that half the vaccinators were on strike. The other half had given a date when they would go on strike. And medical officers had given a date when they would go on strike. Everything was falling apart. And I said to one of my colleagues, at least we know things can't get worse. And the next day they got worse because India exploded its first nuclear device. Mm -hmm. And as a test, underground test, it brought reporters from around the world. The reporters reported on this, then started looking for other stories. And they thought there's a large outbreak of smallpox in Bihar State, They had no idea that the outbreak was really, our surveillance was getting better and better, and we were finding what was already there. With that, the government became very reluctant to continue surveillance containment.
0: Well, and in fact, there's a story about that, what that led to. Um, You were uh, summoned at one point to the uh, uh, residence or to the uh, office of the U.S. Ambassador to India at the time, Daniel Patrick Moynihan. uh, You thought you were going in to report on the wonderful work you'd been doing, that surveillance was working. What really happened?
1: (laughs) As I walked in, he was standing by his desk. He didn't even greet me. He was holding a folder, and he said, I have evidence that you're spreading smallpox. And that took me totally by surprise. His point was that the Communist Party in India had successfully put out information that the U.S. was working on malaria and was actually using this as a covert system to find out information, and that they were about to do the same thing with smallpox. And he said he was going in to see Indira Gandhi that afternoon, and what should he be saying. He took me by surprise and just before going into his office, the embassy doctor had taken me aside and he said, I want you to know something. Moynihan thinks a hundred times faster than anyone in this building. Do not try to contradict him. He said, you will lose the argument and you will be thrown out of his office. So here he says, I have evidence that you're spreading smallpox. What am I to do? So I told him about what was happening with smallpox eradication around the world, that the key was now India, and the key in India was UP or Uttar Pradesh and uh, Bihar. And that's why we had Americans in the field with smallpox. Had nothing to do with covert uh, activities of any kind. In 20 minutes, he had done a total about-face, and he said, I'm still seeing Indira Gandhi. What should I do to help? So it turned out to be an amazing thing that happened that day. There is no public health decision that's ever made that isn't backed up by some political decision.
0: So uh, let's talk about the results of your work in India. I mean we're talking about a million cases of perhaps of smallpox across the country uh, before a major inoculate your plan uh, started going into effect is that fair? It
1: it, it is probably even an underestimate. Okay. Even 6 months into the or 9 months into the program when we really had things working in one state Bihar they were having 1500 new cases of smallpox a day. It took only 12 months from that point to zero in the entire country. I think I think there's never been such an epic in public health in one year.
0: There's there's another very famous story about you um, that tells us a lot about who you are. Uh, as you were coming close to getting to zero, you told David Sensor back in Atlanta at CDC you were coming home. What did Sensor tell you?
1: I think he wanted me to stay there in order to see the completion of this. And for me, uh, I don't see things quite that way. Instead of celebrating with the last case of smallpox in a country, I used to celebrate when I knew in my mind it could be done and that you didn't have to stay till the end. I thought it was also good for the Indians to see this as their own program, not as a lot of foreigners that were in helping them. It, although it was the foreigners that helped them speed this up, they could have done it on their own, but it would have taken longer.
0: But you could have taken a lot of credit. you could have you could have been personally congratulated over and over, celebrated by the world for that. And yet it was more important to you to say no, no. The foreigners have to get out of the way. The Indians are the ones who deserve the credit for this. Why, why are you so selfless <laughs> about things like that? No, no, I, I, I like credit. Uh, yeah, and
1: my wife can tell you that I like I... I like credit. It's, uh, but uh, um, I think that we all work in coalitions. We don't do anything by ourselves. And what we've learned about coalitions uh the best ones the most successful ones actually the first step is determining what's the last mile Mm. rather than what's the next step and then people buy on to a last mile but i think another lesson is how to substitute personal ego for group ego
0: you talk about ego suppression
1: yeah ego suppression because we all like the turf battles and, and so forth but if we now become part of a group, then the turf battle is we're winning against the enemy, which in this case was smallpox. Uh, so I, I think there's something very important about ego suppression.
0: You really move from one difficult fight, smallpox, uh, to another one, and that was uh, universal childhood immunization. And I think the real story there is I think when you began that effort, Uh, 20% of the world's children, you estimated, were being immunized for most childhood diseases. And the players involved in this effort were all off in their own silos. World Health Organization, World Bank, UNICEF, I assume CDC to some extent. You use this theory of let's look at the last mile, not the first mile, as a vision and set a goal of 80% immunization.
1: It was interesting that the 80% came from Jim Grant at UNICEF. He wanted that as an objective. And the people who had been working separately uh, didn't see beyond their own budgets. And so when Robert McNamara said, we have to raise $100 new dollars, everyone said, that's not possible. Two years after our meeting in Bellagio, Italy, looking at this, no one would have settled for $100 new dollars. Italy alone put in $100 million for immunization in Africa. Much of this I I feel embarrassed about was smoke and mirrors because the world then thought we had a plan after that Bellagio meeting simply because we got people talking together and working together. This is
0: where you brought all those organizations together and said, let's attack this collectively.
1: That's right. And we set up a headquarters here in Atlanta. And because people thought there was a plan, they started giving more money to UNICEF and to WHO and and to other groups. And so we very quickly had to come up with a plan. And in six short years, we went from that 20% level, and for measles it was only 14%, We went from that level to Jim Grant announcing on September 30th, 1990, at the Summit for Children, that 80% of children had now received at least one vaccine. And he said, this is the greatest peacetime effort the world has ever seen.
0: And where do we stand today on that?
1: For a while, immunization levels went down. And now Melinda and Bill Gates got involved and they pledged in 1999, $750 million over five years to improve immunization. Norway gave $250 million, the UK gave over a billion dollars, so immunization globally looks very good these days.
0: We'll continue my conversation with Dr. Bill Foege in a moment. First, let's pause for these messages. Thanks for joining me for today's special edition of Political Rewind, a conversation with Dr. Bill Fage. He's the man credited with leading the campaign to eradicate smallpox. We recorded our talk with Dr. Fage in the fall of 2015, and it still has great relevance to what we're dealing with as the coronavirus continues to take a toll on people in the United States and many other countries in the world. One of the themes we've spent a good deal of time discussing on our show recently is that COVID 19 has crystallized our understanding of health care disparities in our country. The virus has had a disproportionate impact on blacks and Hispanics, many of whom have less access to medical care, are exposed to the risks of having to work in jobs that take them into the community, and often have pre existing conditions that make them more vulnerable to the disease. And so I think this final segment of my talk with Dr. Foege has particular resonance right now. Let's talk a bit about global health equity, global health equality. Paul Farmer, who is one of the heroes of public health, has done an enormous amount of work in Haiti, um, said the root of all evil is that some lives are more important than others. You said the world cannot be allowed to exist half healthy and half sick. There's a point in every movement where a line is crossed. There's a drop of water that finally causes a glass to overflow, a moment when a friendship becomes permanent, a moment when a vaccine actually provides protection. There will be a moment in the future when the phrase, the world cannot be allowed to exist, have healthy and have sick, will go from being a nice statement to an actual commitment. Once again, seeing the end of the journey, not the start of the journey? Well,
1: first of all, on the, on the basic human level, uh, we have no real concept of what it's like to be dirt poor. We, we, some of us grew up less rich than others, and so we think we have that feeling, but we don't know the desperation of day-in, day-out living. And uh, the former prime minister of Jamaica once said, Poverty poverty shared can be endured, but when it's not shared, it can't be. And with global communications the way they are, poor people around the world know we're not sharing their poverty.
0: When when you talk about uh, uh, global health equality, um, you you referred to it earlier. You talked about your experience in Nigeria. And here's what you wrote in your book. As much as we learned while we were living in Nigeria, the differences between the villagers' experience and ours always remained starkly evident. For one thing, as you said before, we could leave anytime we wanted. For another, we had access to basic health knowledge and the money to be able to apply it when the villagers did not. And you talk about the example of whooping cough, which was prevalent at one point in that village. The villagers could didn't have money to be treated for whooping cough, is what you point out. Mm-hmm. So this is a clear example of where equality is so crucial in our healthcare system, right? That's right. And it, there was one disease
1: that was even uh, more stark, and that was measles. Um, in this country, measles was seen as a childhood disease. But uh, 50 years ago, it killed over 3 million children a year. And in Africa, you could see how people feared measles because it would sweep through and 7% of all children born in Nigeria died of measles when we first went there, 7%. I mean, this is just unbelievable toll. And here the knowledge was there. We had we had the vaccine.
0: And where do we stand with measles across the globe today? Uh, I
1: went down from 3 million to 2 million to 1 million to 500,000 to 200,000. And it's someplace about 100,000 now. I mean, it's, it's way low. Three years ago, I was talking to the Humphrey Fellows here at Emory. Our grandson was with us at the time. So he sat in the back of the room. Question and answer period, and he raised his hand. And he said, I would like to believe you because you're my grandfather. But he said, if it's really true that 16,000 children under the age of five died every day in the world, that would be the headlines every day. And it isn't. So he said, I'd like to believe you, but I'm not sure I can. And I pointed out two things. Number one, how we tolerate things we shouldn't tolerate. But number two, when I started, that figure was 50,000 a day, and now it's 16,000. It's gone down two thirds. So you can see the improvement. I mean, it, this is not just a black hole that we put money into and nothing changes. It, things are changing around the world. And so, this concept of justice, and, and that's what public health is it's social justice as its philosophical base that everyone should have access to the same information and abilities as other people. This turns out to be so important, personally. But it also turns out to be important for a country. That we know that the less divergence you have between rich and poor in a country, uh, the better off that society is. That it's not just that a few people are better off, everybody's better off. And so it's important for productivity of a country if people are well. It's important for buying products from another country if our population is well.
0: So we've talked about public health globally. How are we doing right now in the United States?
1: You know, I wonder why anyone comes to the United States for advice on health. When you look at the mess of our system, where the marketplace and political events have given us a system where we spend far more than any other country on health, and our health outcomes are not even in the top five, they're not even in the top 10, they're not even in the top 20. I mean, there's something wrong with this. And when you look at, even in our state here, uh, here we are in the Bible Belt. You would think that we would have ministers by the hundreds coming out saying, we want equality when it comes to health care in this country, and instead, We have a governor who has rewritten Matthew 25 to say, when, Lord, did we see you sick and not provide Medicaid? Uh,
0: Earlier in our conversation, you mentioned that the status of women in Africa led to their poor health outcomes. You were talking about AIDS. You continue to worry about the issue of how women are treated, right? Uh, Last
1: week, I was able to talk at the Hilton Humanitarian Awards. The last 20 winners were there. And I was pointing out how all of the big changes in the world come from individuals and organizations so that slavery took forever for this. And it's not, we're not at the end of the the, uh, road yet, but we're getting closer. When you look at equality for women uh, and all of the things that have improved since my mother was born into this country where she couldn't vote, and you see these these improvements, but what I said to this group was, I'm gonna die without seeing equality for women. And that makes me angry. And I can tell you though, the last organization that will give equality to women, and that will be the marketplace. As long as they can pay women less and get away with it, they will. But I said, what even hurts more is to know that the second to the last organization will be church groups who do not see women as the equal of men. And therefore, they can't be priests, they can't be ministers, they can't do certain things. Uh, This just is so bothersome, it has to stop. And I then quoted Susan B. Anthony, who said that uh,
0: this sort of fight against tyranny is doing the work of God. Let me ask you one last question. Um, Given that so much of your career has been devoted to immunization, um, how do you react to the anti-immunization movement that has taken hold in at least uh, certain uh, segments of the the American population?
1: I start from the point that these parents— want to protect their children. They're trying to do the right thing for their mm-hmm. children. So their problem is not that they're bad parents. Their problem is that they don't have the right information. And to try to get the right information, that there was a particular person who published a paper that we now know was fraudulent and that he was being paid by a lawyer who had a suit against a vaccine company. But Andrew Wakefield caused so much trouble, and many of these people don't have a chance to, to find out what happened. He lost his license in the UK because of this. They were able to show that the cases that he had in his uh, file were not what the doctors who referred those cases said they were. So he lied about a lot of things. We now know, because of many studies, that autism is not related to immunization. And that, in fact, autism is probably related to something that happens in the second trimester of pregnancy. It's not something that happens after a child is born. But we have to get that information out and and useful. What are a couple things we could do? Number one, we can make it as difficult to opt out of immunizations as it is to opt in.
0: How do you do that?
1: Well, to opt in, you have to sign a form that says, I understand that this vaccine could kill my child and all of these things. So to opt out, you should be have to sign a form that says, I understand this is what could happen to my child. I understand the risk they pose to other children, et cetera. But another thing, obstetricians could say to every pregnant woman, you do not have to worry about congenital rubella syndrome. Mm -hmm. Your, Your child is free of that. Why? Because other children were vaccinated, stopped the transmission of that virus. So this is the social contract that they made with you. What are you willing to make Uh in return? To point out that we really are all in this uh, together.
0: So I want to close, if I can, by going back and looking at how you really changed faces. In, In the postscript to House on Fire, here's what you say. Over the years, on every return to India, I have searched the faces of people on the street looking for pockmarks. Soon I could find no pockmarked faces under the age of 10, then 20, and now no pockmarks are to be found on people under the age of 35. That really is changing the face of the world, <laughs> Dr. Fage. Thank you for being here. Thank you for everything you've done well, for all you. of us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: If you'd like to know more about the extraordinary campaign to eliminate smallpox, Dr. Bill Fage's book is a great read. It's called House on Fire, the Fight to Eradicate Smallpox. And by the way, to this day, smallpox is the only infectious disease in the world to have been completely eradicated. That's it for this edition of Political Rewind. We're taking tomorrow off as the 4th of July weekend gets underway, but we'll be back with a brand new show next Monday. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care and please stay healthy.